Good morning again. So glad to have y'all today. Beautiful prayer by Asher there. Man, that just does my heart good. So I'm going to ask you, how was your week? Was it good? Man, great week, right? Despite the heat, despite all the things going on in this world, some of us probably had some great weeks. Maybe it was wonderful, maybe it wasn't. Maybe you had a week that felt like it went from bad to worse. And so if you're one of those today, or if you can even recall that you had a week where it went from bad to worse, or good to bad to worse, I want to help you out. And maybe not in the most Christ-like way, but I'm going to help you out. I want to improve your week. And probably by default, nothing more improves our weeks more than by laughing at the plight of others. And so we're going to look at some pictures here for a second. That of people whose week went from bad to worse. And these are meant to be numerous. We're not picking on anybody. These are pretty great. First one here is a guy who just worked a double shift in New York City. He's worn out. He's got nothing to eat at home. So he gets a pizza. He's excited about his pizza. And then he gets on the subway. And this happens to him because he falls asleep. Poor guy, man. Imagine when he woke up. You know, I think this is how COVID started. He ate that pizza off the floor and went from there. Or maybe this guy. Uh, this one's kind of, you got to kind of look at this one for a little bit. But this guy went to the, the eye doctor, and his vision was so bad, and he didn't know that his vision was so bad. He thought the world was just all blurred. And to add insult to injury, because he didn't think he needed prescription lenses, his doctor's office, confirming the next appointment for him, Sends him a letter in this size of font. Following your recent items, we right to confirm your next appointment in 110 point font. Because, brother, you're blocked. <laughs> I would love to open that up. That'd be hilarious. And then finally, this girl, this last one here. This girl was an office desk. She never wanted to work inside. She always wanted to work outdoors and be in the outdoors. And finally, she found a pretty good job. Pretty good paying job of being a beekeeper at a major honey farm. Only to find out, after working at the honey farm for a day, that she was allergic to bees. <laughs> you guys all say, oh, I think that's hilarious. <laughs> Not only have I vomited, but I have been 
vomited. And that is the actual Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for vomit is chah. Because it's, it's, it's a sound. That's the idea. To throw up. But his adventure for Jonah is not over. Yahweh God is not done with Jonah. The call is still there. God has not given up on this prophet who seems to rebel every turn. He has chased Jonah in love. And the punishment wasn't the fish. The fish, the sea creature, is a rescue. That even through death, God can bring salvation to him. And bring him through and save him. So Jonah, although he's free of the storm and free of the sea creature, he is now back. Desperately trying to avoid the one thing he's always wanted to And that is the Assyrians. He has been trying to avoid the capital city of Nineveh from going from bad to worse to getting cleaned up to now having to go back to his original home. But before we get into the journey this morning, we're going to reintroduce ourselves a little bit of a profile of Jonah. We need to get this in our mind. We need to get a picture of Jonah this morning. Before we get to Nineveh, before we see what happens in chapter 3 of Jonah, I want you all to see who Jonah is. And I've asked Corbin to come up and he's going to be Jonah for us. The reason I asked Corbin is he walked through the door today and I thought, that guy looks like he's been in Tarshish. He's got the tropical shirt on. He's looking good. Let's see what Jonah looks like. So here's Jonah, okay? Jonah's a prophet, right? So here's your robe. I'm going to find the head hole here in this thing. There we go. Put that on for us. Head goes right through the middle. And wrap that around your head, your waist, I don't know what it's for. Whatever you want to do. He's a prophet. And a prophet's not just anybody. He's somebody commissioned by God. He's got a career. It wasn't just a side hustle for him. This is something he was supposed to do. And not only is he a prophet, He's got the calling, the mantle. People would have known who he was. Other than that, though, Jonah also has experience in God's love. LTC right? <laughs> he has done the work of God before. He's done the things that he was supposed to do. Remember 2 Kings 14, Jonah goes to a king, Jeroboam II, and prophesies. Jeroboam II is evil. But yet, Although the king was evil, Jonah comes to him with a message of purpose. So Jonah has experience in the love and compassion of God. He's an amazing God to people around him. But more than that, just more than a prophet and more than having experience, we know that as a great prophet, he has knowledge in the word of God. And he's been going to church. He has a bulletin. We missed but he was there last week, July 10th. He's got this knowledge. He knows Torah. He knows the will of God. He knows the story. He's a good God. And even more than that, even deeper, he's got a mission. He's got Google Maps set up, and he's ready to go to the dinner. Right? Except that he's really not. He's got the knowledge, he's got the know-how, he's got the wisdom, and he's got the mission. But here's the key. With all those things, his Bible, his Torah knowledge, the previous experience he's had, the calling to be a prophet. The one thing that's getting, and it's in the text, but it's not. It's not overt in the text, but it's there. It's, he's also carrying a deep bias 
And I don't think it's too far to say a despising hatred for the Assyrians. And for good reason. We'll show you a couple pictures here. And I'm going to put them in Jonah's hands. Because Jonah is carrying these thoughts. These are actual etchings and stone carvings that come from the Assyrian Empire. From the times of Tiglath-Pileazar, the first and second, and the time of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. These people are brutal. Look at this. This depicts what they would do to the cities they ransacked. They would impel people on poles and hang the poles outside the city and talk to the rest of the people who were still alive. Or, if that's, I know that's pretty violent, but this is true, or this depicts what they would do once they captured the city. They would lay people down, tie them to the ground, and skin them alive. They were awful. Jonah has this in the back of his head. And so if Jonah wanted to make a good case to God and say, there's no way I should go, he could make a good case. If Jonah was here with us today, and we gave the mic here to Jonah slash Corbin, he could go, you know why these people aren't deserving of God's love? Let me tell you. Ooh, I'm Very good. That's right. That's me. So guys, this is the picture. I'm going to let Corbin, you can sit down in your row if you want to. But keep this picture in your mind as we get to check. Of a guy who's not only qualified, but a guy who has got a story, a narrative in his mind about there is no way God could say or want to say or have anything to do with Ninevites, the people of Assyria. This is Jonah, a knowledgeable man, but a knowledgeable, knowledgeable man who believes the people God is calling him to are simply undeserving. They are too far gone. There is no way Jonah said, you can give him grace. So let's pick it up with that in mind. Jonah chapter 3, 1 through 4. Here's what happens. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So the first time it came, he arose and, fl and fled and went, well, went on a trip. The second time, God comes to him and says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah this time obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going one day's journey into the city proclaiming, Forty days more, and Nineveh will be overthrown. So God here comes to Jonah and says, Go, I'm giving up on you. I'm going to use you. And Jonah this time obeys. And when he gets to Nineveh, this massive city, a city that takes three days to walk through and around, we're supposed to laugh. Because there's a little humor in the text that we miss. I told you there's a laugh track in this book. But what immediately is here that we miss is that in Jonah chapter 2 verse 10, Jonah is vomited out of a sea creature or a fish after spending three days in it. Now he's sent to a city, notice the humor, that takes three days to walk through. And you might go, oh, that's not that funny. But tell you know this. Nineveh's name is an Akkadian name. Ancient Akkadian is what, is what the language is. And it's named after an a, a ancient goddess of Akkadia or Babylon, Babylon, 
named Nina. And Nina is the fish goddess. So Nineveh actually means fish city. So God's like, hey, I rescued you. You spent three days in a fish. Now you're going to fish city. Right? There's some humor in this text. God has a sense of humor. I know you guys are like, well, it's not a meme, but it would work. Right? But what happens here is what we're supposed to see in the text is that Jonah is being taken from what we would say the boiler pot to fry. It's a place he doesn't want to go. From one fish to another. And maybe this is why the text tells us this little detail. And we're going to talk about this here in a little bit. The city takes three days to walk through. But Jonah only goes for how One. He has a shortened trip. And Jonah on this shortened trip in fish city stops. And instead of giving a long sermon, he gives a very short sermon. It's right there, last line on the screen. It's eight words in English, and it's only five words in Hebrew. Forty days more, and Nineveh will be over. What a sermon, right? Great sermon, Jonah. Some of you are wishing, man, Jake, why didn't you go to the Jonah School of Preaching? <laughs> Five-word sermon would be great. But remember this about the text. Not a word is wasted in the Bible. And it's certainly not wasted in this little book of Jonah. Jonah's short little sermon is supposed to get us to go as readers of the text, as people who are meditating on the text day and night. We're supposed to go, that's weird. That's a strange sermon, Jonah. We're supposed to put on the Ninevite shoes and start to ask some questions about this sermon. Forty days more, and then we'll be overthrown. Eight words, five words in Hebrew. So if you're a Ninevite, what questions would you ask? Well, look at what's not in the sermon. Who's going to overthrow us? Who told you this? How will this happen? Is another nation going to come destroy us? Is it going to be fire from heaven? Nor is there an explanation of why. Yes, the worldwide knew of the injustices and the horrors of the Assyrian Empire. But what if you're just a housewife? What if you are a servant in somebody's house? What if you're a donkey herder? What if you're a tree trimmer? What if you're a farmer? Are you being held guilty for the sins of your king? So what we have here is a sermon in which Jonah doesn't mention who sent him, where he's from, who told him to tell this little short message, any other details. Just 40 days more, and then it will be over. Now, <coughs> let's go a little deeper. Why does Jonah give this short little sir? There's a lot, lot of different answers here. If, you, if you're a Bible student and you you want to look this up, you're going to be given a bunch of different answers. Why is Jonah's sermon so short? But the one I would lean into right now in my life would be this. Is Jonah's short sermon considers his short character. Or his better way of saying it, his lack of character. I don't know if this is even the message God gave God says, I'm going to give you a message. We don't know if Jonah actually did this. What we do know is Jonah doesn't want to be there. 
we also know is that he's been in rebellion and disobedience to Yahweh the entire time. And we'll see more of this in chapter 4. What we really know is that Jonah doesn't want Nineveh to hear from God or to receive from God. He wants them to be destroyed. This is where Jonah is. So why not give a five-word sermon, an eight-word sermon? Why would Jonah do that? It's because maybe he's short-circuiting himself. Right? He's like my friend David Duncan, who you guys know who told us one time. I just when when Barbara has me fold the laundry, I just do a poor job so she won't ask me to do it again. Because I have an eighth grader who does that. Right? If I hold the yard terrible, then I won't do it. If I don't really do the sermon, God won't ask me to do this again. That's Jonah's character. But it's also what he says in verse 4. If you got your Bible, lean into verse 4. Maybe underline verse 4. Because that's where the sermon is. But the last word of the sermon is what Jonah really wants. The last word is this word that your translation might say is overthrown. Or might say it's overturned. Or destroyed. Forty days more and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's what Jonah wants. This Why he short shortens the sermon or just leaves it vague. He's doing that because he wants this word, and it's the Hebrew word hapak. It's this word that is directly tied and heavily tied in the Old Testament to destruction. Specifically, it is a word that shows up a whole lot of the times that it's used in connection with Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll show you one here. And then on the screen, if you want to look at some others this afternoon, they're there. Genesis 19, 25 says, Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew Hapak. He Hapak, those cities, and all the surrounding area, and all the inhabitants of the city, and what grew on the ground. And of course, that appears in that same idea of destruction appears in those passages, Isaiah and Genesis and Jeremiah and Deuteronomy and So, Jonah knows this, right? Remember? He got the word, right? He knows Torah. He knows that Hapak, or overthrow, is connected to hell and fire and brimstone, destruction and burning. So Jonah's motivation in this five-word sermon, eight words in English, is judgment. God, bring your judgment. He wants overthrow, fire, and brimstone. Maybe this is why he's so big. Because if I really tell them about God, they might repent. But if I just tell them just enough and not even mention God's name, I'll get what I want. These people to be destroyed. So with that in mind, let's go into the text and see what happens. Verses 5 through 10. This is great. Verse 5 opens up. The Ninevites believed God. They didn't believe in God, right, church? They believed God. How they know it was God? I do not know. But they believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, or burlap, that's what that is. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. And here's the letter he sent out. By the decree of the 
king and his nobles did not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Did not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. Let them join me, he's saying, in repentance. Let everyone urgently call on God. Now, in the text, they don't even know who they're talking to. This is just Elohim. They don't say it, Yahweh. They just know there's something, so they're crying out. To, the, to whoever this is from, we're going to cry out. They're just like the sailors on the boat. We don't know who to cry to, but we know we're going to cry out. We're desperate for rescue. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Remember those two slides? This is the repentance. Who knows, God may yet relent with compassion. Turn from its fierce anger so that we will not perish. And then the last verse, verse 10. But God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. He relented and did not bring upon them the destruction he had driven. So here's what happens. In response to a five-word sermon, Jonah's the most successful yet lousy preacher of all time. <laughs> An incredible revival breaks out. The city of Nineveh has three responses. People fast and put on sackcloth. The king rises from his throne and puts on sackcloth. And then he tells everybody, not just people, to fast and put on sackcloth, but even the animals. Which again is another point of humor. You gotta think about the cows in the field are like, why are you thinking about animals? Why are you putting bird on sackcloth? But that's the vision, is that the, the revival was so great that even repentance spread beyond humans into the animals. It's a crazy, we'll talk more about that in a couple weeks in chapter 4. But here's the point. What Jonah's trying to do here, this book, not Jonah the man, but Jonah's book, is trying to make it abundantly clear. It's supposed to be highlighted in our minds in yellow and surrounded by neon lights and with a spotlight put, put on it that is this. Is what it's trying to say is God's heart and Jonah's heart are worlds apart. What Jonah wants, a pop. God doesn't want. He's looking not for a pop. He's looking for response. God is willing to save everyone. Jonah I'm going to one day walk, Lord. I'll walk through the city. I'll do it one and I'll give it five words. God is yearning for and chasing these people who have turned their back on him. God's like, yeah. Or Jonah's like, yeah, I'll walk out. I'll walk God hears their cries. Hears the cries of other nations that have suffered their injustices at the hands of Assyria. And Jonah's like, I'll just bear everyone. God is moved by their repentance. And as you'll see in chapter 4, Jonah is firm in his hard heart. But what it comes down to is this. And we're going to work on this in just a minute. Jonah struggles with two things. He struggles with the idea of a God who is loving and a God who at the same time, because of justice, can hold judgment. And he only wants more. And I would probably go as far to say to say that we struggle with the idea of a God of love holding judgment more even the idea of a God of judgment than you. 
we're going to work on this for just a second. Just hang with me for just a little longer because this is important. Not just to be faithful to the text. It's important to be faithful as the people of God. We wrestle with this. Here's what we do. On one side, man, and I probably lean over here. It's hard for me sometimes to stomach passages about judgment. Man, 1 John 4 says God is love. Right? It's his attribute. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says God, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, faithful. Right? Abounding in steadfast love. He's loved. So a lot of us, we wrestle with these two ideas because we want God to be loving. And we've been taught by our world that if anybody is judging... That's wrong, right? Some of the worst parts of Christianity that we've ever seen is because we have leaned heavily on the ship. So a lot of us respond and go, well, I'm only, I'm going to ignore all those passages. I'm not going to look at those passages. I'm not going to look at God of justice. Now I want to get up On the other side, there's some of us that really love this side. We want people to know you mess up. Pretty much that. God's going to get you. Right? So how do we make this work? How do we reconcile? How do we understand that? Because we both do the same things. We ignore pieces and parts of God. So here's what we do. Let's work on this for just a little bit. Here's where we got to start. We've got to remember that love and judgment are not opposites. These are not opposites. What love is, God is love. And I'm not saying God is judgment. God is the judge, but God is love. But here's how this works. Is that with love and just judgment, how do we reconcile it? We were to understand this. That God's judgment is an expression of his love. Because God is a God of justice. God's judgment is an expression of his love. So think about it like this for just a second. What are we saying when we hold these two things in opposition? As if they have nothing to do with each other. Instead of realizing that they actually do have something to do with each other. Because God is loving, he can hold judgment because he is God. So what are we saying when we lean on one and not the other, ignore one, or we really like this one and we say, no, God doesn't love me. He's just out of here. Well, here's what we're doing. What I'm really saying when we hold those two, two things in extreme opposition is I believe something about God that's not true. But more than that, here's the kicker. I'm actually saying something more about what I believe about Because what we're doing is not letting God be God. No matter which side we stand on, whether we're guys that are like, I gotta ignore all the judgment because God will just take me where I am, and it doesn't matter if I change, if He's just love, He's gonna love me no matter what I do. Or if I stand on the other side and I'm always just, oh, God's just hateful, and I better watch out, and I better not mess up one time because I'll go to hell, and if I die while I'm sitting, I know I'm gonna go to hell. What we're both saying is we believe we're God and God's not. That's the key. And that's what Jonah's doing. Jonah doesn't want to give the Ninevites the time of day or the moment of God's word because he believes he knows better than God. And when we believe we 
than God, guess who we just put on the show? Y'all with me? Everybody awake? Get a bunch of blank stares. <laughs> That's the truth. But who is God really? Who is God? So a few moments ago, we looked at this word apostasy. It's what Jonah wants to have. He wants Nineveh. He wants them to go back. He wants fire and brimstone. He's like the sons of thunder, James and John. He wants them destroyed. Now, while that word, the pop, is directly related to fire and brimstone with Sodom and Gomorrah, and Jonah wanted to see the nuclear option exercised here, God is going to the pot. But he's going to help Hawk in a different way because Hawk, like a lot of Bible words, is much richer and deeper than we know. Just like God is much richer and deeper than we know. Hawk is tied to the idea of overthrow, but it also means turn over. Not just overthrow as in crush, but overthrow as in a new way. Find a new way. Or change. Reverse course. Transform. It, like many other words, are abundant with meaning. And I want to show you a few of these where this word hapak shows up. And it's not about God going, you've come to the end of your rope, I've got to do something here. And it, what he does is something with destruction. It's God going, you've come to the end of your rope, I'm going to redeem you. It appears here with King Saul, 1 Samuel 10, 6. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you. Samuel's telling this to Saul. And you will prophesy with him. And look, and you will be hapocked into a different person. You will be turned over. You will be changed. Amos uh, 5 verse 8 says, He who made the Pleiades, Orion, stars in the sky, who hapocks darkness into light, midnight into dawn, he turns things over. And this one, Psalm 30, 11, maybe the most clear. Because the psalmist says this, Because I've met you, God, you have popped my mourning, my wailing, my hard time, my suffering. You turned it over, and now I'm a person of joy and dancing. You removed what? My sackcloth, because I was vented, and now you crowned me with joy. See the difference? This is what God's doing. While Jonah just wants judgment, God is going, oh, I'm going to judge him, but I'm not going to judge him the way you want to. Because I'm going to tell him who I am. I'm going to show him who I am. And here's what works. This is so beautiful. Did the, and let's just do this by asking a couple questions. Do the Assyrians deserve judgment? Yes or no? Yeah, you saw this. We could go on and on. I could talk for a half hour about the atrocities of the Assyrian Empire. It's horrible. Yes. And they did get to it. But instead of it being retributive, God gave them his favorite tradition. Restored. And why did he do that? Why did God, why did God do that? It's because what they did in response to the message was they turned around. And when you turn from the way you're doing things, guess what's there? Grace. And that grace then leads to love. This is what 
and I'm going to turn, what we receive is not more of this. What we receive is an abundance of this. Amen, church? Oh, my goodness. This is who God is. He is the one that turns it around. A restorative justice, a transformative justice. And it's the reason that He gives that to them is it because they repent. Now, God's love, a lot of people really struggle with this because they think it's just all squishy-wishy, teddy-bearish. It's not. God's love is so fierce, it will burn sin away, right? Amen. Right? The fires of hell and fire of heaven are the same thing. It's the love of God. Right? God doesn't send anybody to hell. It's just the people that want hell can't hate it because the love of God is not fierce. And when we get to know God and we turn and we let it burn our sin away, we repent. So judgment then is not who God is, but it is an attribute of His love. And when the Assyrians respond with repentance, it changes everything. It's when they turn, they discover this attribute of God, His love, His mercy, His grace. So I want to close with this idea and a quick story. You've heard me say this before, but I'm going to keep saying it because I'm here. And y'all need it. Repentance is not a dirty word, church. Amen. And shame on us. We've made it that way because we have been the ones that when somebody needs to repent, we stand in the back as somebody comes forward and all we do is judge them. We become Jonah. Repentance is good news. It is the path of grace. It is the path of renewal. It is the path of restoration. You know, we always hear repentance as this 180, and it is, right? It's this 180 turn towards the Lord. It's not a 180 turn towards nothing. It's a 180 turn towards the Lord. But you know what else repentance is? It's also less than 180. It's Yes, I, I turned to the Lord and I got baptized into Him, but repentance is a daily act of going, I'm drifting just a little bit, let me, let me re-engage. I messed up over here, let me talk to the Lord about it. I need a little bit of accountability, let me reach out to a friend. It's, repentance is a daily act of adjusting ourselves to the Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit can move us towards His goal of looking like Jesus. Amen. Right? I'm preaching better. You guys are amen. Right? Right? So, what do we do with this? How do we live this life? If you're sitting there today and you're going, I don't need to repent. I did that once I got baptized. I'm good. You're missing the point. You haven't taken up your cross to follow Jesus. Repentance is good news and it is daily. It is God. I want to be Christ-like today. And we repent, and sometimes big moves, which is that 180, or even when we repent, just small little adjustments. The good news is, church family, we receive grace. We receive grace. So a couple weeks ago in church, this happened, and I'm not going to mention this. We had a little girl there in the offering, sitting with her parents, and uh, we done communion. And the author basket was coming down her aisle. It was coming pretty quick. She had a little, I don't know if it was a coin purse or wallet. We'll just call it a wallet. And usually somebody in her family will give her a dollar, give her something, and she puts that in the offering plate or in the basket. 
A couple weeks ago, as that basket went down, she was in a hurry, and she had her little wallet open, and she reached in that wallet, instead of just filling out a bill or two, she reached in that wallet, which was full of birthday and Christmas money, and all kinds of other things to begin with her, and she just reached in full fist and, and took out everything she could and dumped it all in. Every bit of it. Her parents were kind of amazed by this, watched her, didn't say anything, but when they got home, they asked her, they said, saw what you did, why did you? I want y'all to hear this, because this is what Brian is doing. She said, well, our church helps people that need help. And people that need stuff. And I want to help. Little children, hearts, know that because God is full of grace and love, they can be people of grace and love. And yes, God has judgment, but what is his judgment? What's the purpose of his judgment? So people will repent and come to their way. I love that story. Last thing, and then we'll finish. Go back to Jonah chapter 2. I want you to see what the king does in verse 6. Because I want to follow the king of Nineveh a little bit this morning. I want to look at his example and say, man, I want to be that way. Unlike Jonah, Verse 6 it says, it doesn't say I'm like Jonah, but here's what verse 6 says. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne and took off the signs of power and authority, his royalty, covered himself and sat down. Sitting down in the dust is a sign of going from dust I come, dust I come. I'm humble. This is where I come from. Putting sackcloth on is a, is a sign of saying, I've been going the wrong route. I want to get right again. But what he's doing is repenting. And why is it an example for us? Is it is that what he's doing is laying down his little kingdom and saying, there's something bigger going. So our invitation this morning is that is to follow the king of Nineveh's Every one of us can call and respond in some way to this sermon. If you, if you don't think you can, man, you need to, you need to tell us how you're doing it. We all build little crowns, little roads, little kingdoms for us to stand up and say, look at me. And when we come face to face with the God of grace, we realize... I didn't build this. I didn't make this. It's all about it. And so I want to ask y'all today, what's the kind of turn you need to make? Might be one Might be time to jump in the water. That's the one way. That's dying to yourself. You know, I'm in. I'm splashing in this water. I'm getting covered in the blood of Jesus and I'm getting filled with the Holy Spirit. But it might just be today, you know, you need to go, man, I'm rejoicing today because there's a 2% degree change or a 10% degree change or a 15% degree change and I need to maybe put my eyes back on Jesus. Some of you guys have been mentoring, maybe you just come today and go, you know what, God put this on my heart and I'm going to share it with the church family. Not because I'm up here and I'm receiving judgment from the judgmental people of the church. I'm up here because God is good. Amen? And I'm ashamed of all the people that are judgmental. I'm ashamed of us because we're afraid of the judgmental people. Let's stop being afraid of that. Let's stand up and 
say, God is good. He is turning our morning into dancing. Yes, dancing, Church of Christ. He is turning. We are excited about what the Lord does. So we get up and we close. So whatever you need today, we are here for you. Let us not be Jonas. Man, let's be like the kingdom. Give it up. Sorry, Gordon. We're not getting picked up. All right. Let's stand together and let's sing.